As chair of Inigard, I'm delighted to welcome you to the International Virtual Conference, The World of Work, The Great Reset. We have six fantastic sessions with participants and speakers from across the globe. Uh, you're very welcome to this session. For those that don't know, Inigard is an international employment law network across 14 countries. I really do hope that you enjoy the next session and please feel free to participate in the networking sessions afterwards. Thanks very much. Hello, everyone. Okay, hello, everyone. Uh, thanks for joining us on this panel on whistleblowing in times of COVID. I am Mathilde Weil, and I am a partner with Weil and Partners uh, in Paris. Uh, we are the French member firm of the International and Climate Law Alliance in Angard. I'm very excited to be chairing this panel of top-notch experts to discuss the impact of this crisis on uh, whistleblowing. So you can ask us questions in the Q&A section to the, to the right side of your screen, and we may, may take some of those uh, at the end of the panel. So with us today, we have an amazing lineup. From Johannesburg, South Africa, Jean Ewong is a partner at Clive Decker Hoffman. Jean focuses on climate law and advises multinational companies on all aspects of climate law, both contentious and not contentious. Mary Inman, a partner at Constantine Kena in San Francisco and London. Mary has been representing whistleblowers from all over the world for more than 20 years under the American Whistleblower Reward Program. Welcome, Mary. Uh, John Davids is the founder of Transparency International in Ireland. John has successfully campaigned for new whistleblower protection and stronger corruption control in Ireland. Hello, John. So why do we need whistleblowers in the first place? Because most wrongdoings happen uh, in the dark, uh, behind closed doors, uh, and sunlight is the best disinfectant. So whistleblowing is basically when you see something, say something, speak up. But it can come with a very high price because you can lose your job, you can be cut off from your uh, social network, you can face threats. Uh, and litigation. Uh, almost every day, we, uh, cases of whistleblowers are calling attention, and far too often we also hear about the retaliation they are facing. Uh, the concept of whistleblowing is actually pretty recent. Uh, some 20 years ago, the Enron scandal, um, uh, uh, so the, uh, Enron's vice president blew the whistle uh, on the financial wrongdoings of the company, and this very famous case highlighted the glaring lack of protection of whistleblowers and led to the famous Southern Oxley Act and, the, and then the Dodd-Frank Act a few years ago. So ever, ever since whistleblowing laws have developed across the globe so as to protect or even reward whistleblowers. Uh, whistleblowing can occur in just any area of activity, financial sector, public service, politics, or health sector. So talking about health, let, let me tell you quickly a, a, a story. So in December 2019, in uh, Wuhan, China, a medical doctor tried to warn about a strange new virus that was causing severe respiratory distress, but he was not listened. Instead, he was accused of spreading false rumors. He was silenced by the Chinese government. And how the story unfolds, I think we all know. Uh, had he not been gagged, uh, maybe some appropriate measures could have been taken at the time when the virus could still be contained. And maybe we wouldn't be where we are now, which is basically sitting home for the past 
12 months. So if you were not already convinced of the compelling need uh, for whistleblower protection, I hope you are now, especially nowadays in this type of in these times of crisis, when there are many new reasons to blow the whistle. Uh, for example, for lack of protective equipment for frontline front workers in, in essential services, such as transportation, local supermarkets, supplies, supply chain, hospitals, or issues uh, relating to uh, cybersecurity or privacy issues now that a lot of us are teleworking. So uh, how have we, have we adapted to this new reality? Are we granting uh, enough protection to whistleblowers so they can safely report wrongdoings at an early stage when they can still be fixed? Uh, what are the new challenges we are facing? What are we doing about them and are we doing enough? So for all, all of these questions, I will uh, turn to my distinguished speakers and uh, starting with uh, Jean now. So Jean, uh, we've seen uh, many studies showing a significant rise in uh, whistleblower reporting since the start of the pandemic. Uh, any thoughts on what may explain this increase? Um, yes, definitely. Uh, I, I came across an interesting article in, um, in Bloomberg, which talked about the, or which quoted the um, United States Security and Exchange Commission, which noted that there'd been a surge in um, whistleblowing reports since the start of the pandemic last year, March. So it is definitely an uptake in whistleblowing, um, which we are, we are seeing in our spaces as employment lawyers. But I think as a starting point, what, what, could be what that could be attributed to is that well, most of us are working from home. We've relocated from our cubicles to our sofas. And so with, the, with that disconnect or that distance, there's a sense of isolation and a sense of um, disconnect from your workplace. And I think that the separation, the physical separation from the office has emboldened people to speak out um, more about impropriety that they may be aware of in the workplace. Um, I think it's also it can be attributed to the fact that we don't have our managers peering over our shoulders anymore. We don't have our colleagues peering over our shoulders anymore. So it's easier to speak out when something's wrong because you're not someone's not policing you directly or physically policing you. So I think that definitely can, definitely can be um, um, attributed to why there's been a surge um, in, in complaints or in, in, in disclosures rather. I also think that although, um, you know, having considered it and talked to some people, I'm not sure if it's a, a huge factor, but in certain instances where people are entitled to some sort of financial compensation arising out of um, the disclosures that they make, if their investigations are successful, that might be a, a motivating factor to, or might be a contributing factor to the, to the uptake. But I think the, the predominant reason really is just the physical separation that we're having from our employers and um, that physical policing or um, has emboldened a lot of us to feel it's, it's okay to, to talk about impropriety. Thank you, Jean. Uh, so, <laughs> turning to Mary now. So governments across the globe have created aid packages of millions of dollars to provide economic relief, economic relief uh, to citizens and companies hit hard by the pandemic. But this monies have been uh, allocated very quickly with little oversight. So what role do you think uh, whistleblowers have played in helping uh, to expose misappropriation of these funds and then more generally to expose health and safety violations such as lack of protection gear or unsafe working conditions? 
Well, there has been a high watermark for whistleblowing, as as we alluded to, Jean was just discussing. I think uh, it's really my privilege to talk about the, the sheer volume of whistleblowers who have reported in both the, the health and safety space and the misappropriation of funds. So let's start with health and safety. Um, in the United States, there's Christian, Chris Smalls was the Amazon employee who was fired. He worked in the warehouse and reported on the fact that there was insufficient PPE for him and for his peers. Um, and unfortunately, the result, as I mentioned, was that he was fired. He has become a symbol for that movement, a class action lawsuit was filed. Um, and and I, so I think it's it's given voice to the frontline workers and, and he's been an important voice. He's 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 formed a Congress of essential workers and has really sort of taken on the face of that campaign. Um, there's a whistleblower in Florida still sticking with the United States, the Department of Health, who was terminated for um, refusing to be silenced when she is a data scientist and the numbers that she was reporting on COVID um, infections and deaths um, was not popular with the Republican governor in the state of um, Florida. And so um, she took it upon herself to, after she was fired, to actually create her own website. Um, and keep the data going uh, appropriately. So uh, she, again, is not a, it's not a great story here with whistleblowers being fired, but the, the more uh, heartwarming part is that she has found alternative ways and she had, herself has become the voice of um, keeping governments accountable for having information, appropriate information for the public. And interestingly and ironically in Malaysia, there's a whistleblower by the name of Yubaraj Kadka, who worked at Top Glove, one of the many companies that are supplying us with the gloves that we need for protective equipment. Ironically, he um, complained and was fired by for complaining about the fact that there was ins insufficient social distancing going on at the plant. Um, and then finally, in a very, um, uh, very major uh uh, a signaling was a uh, Captain Brett Crozier uh, of the American aircraft carrier Theodore Roosevelt. Um, he had a 4,000 crew members on board his ship, had some positive uh, COVID, uh, people tested positive for COVID, they were airlifted away and he insisted uh, despite his uh, other orders that he come into port so that people could um, quarantine properly. They couldn't quarantine properly on the tight quarters. Um, so these are people who, and of course has gotten a lot of backlash for that. Um, so these are all people who are just a few of the many who have reported on health and safety violations and for whom we're very grateful that they've done this to protect uh, the rest of us. Interestingly, as you alluded earlier, moving over to misappropriation of funds, governments have been giving unprecedented amounts of support um, and packages. In the United States, there's billion and trillion dollar packages in the CARES Act and then in our new American Rescue Plan. There have been whistleblowers who've been critical here. Um, in the United States, the Small Business Association has a relief program called the Pay Paycheck Protection Program, giving loans to small businesses and nonprofits. And we've seen extraordinary amounts of fraud there being, um, being revealed by whistleblowers, including a bunch of companies who didn't exist before March 2020, all of a sudden applying for loans, um, and people who didn't have Ferraris and other um, fancy accoutrements all of a sudden showing up in that way. So 
Um, those are some of the frauds that we've seen. Interestingly, yesterday in the Los Angeles Times, there was um, a piece about a laboratory that gave that gives COVID testing. They started, you know, nine months ago um, with seven employees. They're up to thousands of employees. They uh, have received a. They've earned a billion dollars for uh, giving over 17 million COVID tests, and we've now found out that a lot of these tests are being funded by the CARES Act and by the federal and state and local authorities, and that there's an issue with the accuracy of those uh, of those um, tests. So these are all things that have been brought to light by whistleblowers, and it's just highlighting the importance that, especially when unprecedented amounts of money are being allocated with very little, expeditiously with very little oversight, it's sort of the perfect environment for whistleblowers to be that first and last line of defense in protecting us. Thank you, Mary. This is really interesting. This just confirms how vital uh, whistleblowing is for, uh, for the greater good uh, and, and even for our democracies. So turning to John now, uh, what have you witnessed and how, how would you like to comment uh, on this? Well, I, I haven't witnessed uh, much retaliation at first hand. We have received very few complaints through our helpline here in Ireland. Uh, of whistleblower retaliation in connection with the COVID-19 pandemic. But we have found over the last few years since we established the helpline here that the healthcare sector is one of those, it's probably the sector from which the most or the highest number of complaints come from whistleblowers about retaliation. Um, Ireland isn't unique in that regard. Uh, our counterparts at Protect in London would note a very high number of uh, complaints for retaliation in the NHS and the National Health Service in the UK. Um, and I think that's in part because of the nature of the work and the risks that, that, that the workers in that sector are highlighting. Uh, the stakes are very high. It's a matter in most cases or in many of, uh, it's, a, it's a matter of life and death. And uh, very often, their their concerns are met with inaction or indifference or incapacity, the inability of a, a hospital to deal with a a, 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 um, a serious health and safety risk due to lack of resources. Um, but we have received a, a number of concerns through the helpline about failure failures of, of some employers to put in place um measures to prevent the spread of uh of of the coronavirus uh, particularly in uh, meat plants food production um in uh call centers retail hospitality um and other high risk sectors and the one thing that seems to be the one theme that seems to be uniting or running through all of these complaints is many cases it, 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 in most cases they're being raised those concerns are being raised by vulnerable workers um, they're low paid um, they are low skilled generally speaking and they very often are migrants as well uh, may not be aware of their legal rights or employment rights so they're, they're turning in many cases to um, members of parliament we call them tds in ireland for advice, TDs sometimes will come to us and ask us what we can do. And we often find out about these cases only through the media. 
um, there, 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 there's not, um, there doesn't seem to be an institutional response, an adequate institutional response to these concerns. So while the concerns about the spread of coronavirus and meat plants were raised uh, early on in the pandemic, as early as March or April, we didn't hear about this in the media until June or July. So there was a three month gap from the time these concerns were being raised to the time that it made it onto the political agenda. That is clearly not enough. And what it points to is failure of our institutions uh, to, to address these health and safety risks, to respond swiftly to them. Uh, and uh, that is a down part to a, I think largely down to the refusal to to fund our regulators adequately to 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 inspect to 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 inspect uh, workplaces for health and safety risks to um, make sure that employers have those systems in place. Um, as, as, as an aside, as well, I think it's worth noting that uh, our counterparts in the UK have noted a high rate of or a very large number of complaints, hundreds of complaints from employees uh, reporting uh, the call furlough fraud, uh, fraud in the uh, job retention scheme run by the uh, Treasury and um, the, the, the HMRC, the, the, the Inland Revenue or, or Tax Authorities in the UK. Uh, employers have, in many cases, been asking or demanding that their employees return to work in spite of the fact that the employees are entitled to uh, payments under this scheme. And it was estimated last year that the fraud might amount to something somewhere in the region of £3.5 billion. Pounds. Now, we haven't received complaints of that nature here yet, but it's not to suggest it isn't happening. Um, we've also seen a large number of media reports about what's now euphemistically known or referred to as, um, um, well, chumocracy. Um, in other words, crony capitalism, the, the, the award of public contracts to uh, supply PPE um, and other services to 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 the NHS, uh, to companies with close links to members of the Tory Party in the UK, uh, to to the government, um, we haven't received complaints of that nature here. Again, it's not to suggest it isn't happening, um, but it does highlight the need for people to be assured that they can speak up safely about these concerns. But it also points to the need for action to be taken in response to them. It's not enough for us to hear all about this. No. Something needs to be done in, res in response to it. Yeah. And in very, in very many cases, there is just a lack of political will to deal with these, these concerns. Thank you very much. So it sounds like there are many issues to be addressed and uh, with a certain your emergency uh, level. So on to my next question also to you, John. So in the face of that, what resources have been created by Transparency International and others uh, in the uh, unusual times and, and how effective have they been and what results have been achieved? Well, I, I, I can't say uh, with any, any authority what impact our resources have had. We have produced guidance 
uh, for both workers and employers aimed at helping them uh, speak up uh, and to address the concerns raised by workers. Uh, they're they're available for free on our on our website. Um, if if people want to 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 visit it, it's transparency.ie. Um, and so, so, what happens if I want to report a wrongdoing? I go I go on your website, and then then what happens? Well, we, we we advise people to always seek advice before they speak up if they're uncertain about their rights or the consequences of speaking up. If they believe they might be under threat, uh, they they can come to us. They, they if they're a member of a union, they should contact the trade union representative who should be able to give them advice as well. Uh, they may may already have a, a lawyer that they an employ, employment lawyer that they that they trust. Um, so it's important for them to get advice early uh, and to understand both their rights and responsibilities in speaking up. In many cases, they, they will have a right to escalate their concern if the concern relates to, uh, to bring it to the attention of a regulatory authority or even to a, a, a member of parliament or the media if the threat is immediate and it's, and, and it's very serious. But in most cases, they will be expected to report directly to their employer so that the employer can act swiftly. And they should be aware of internal channels, and policies, expectations in the employer on them to report in a responsible way. Uh, but in very many cases, those policies are labyrinthine, they're very complicated, not easy to read. So it, it's often helpful to get some 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 advice in advance. Um, we noted in some cases that employers uh, are, are can be reluctant uh, to to respond to concerns, particularly when they're under pressure. Resources are being allocated to to uh, elsewhere during a, a crisis such as this. They're not going to prioritise compliance necessarily. So it's important for them to invest some time in ensuring that their policies are up to date, their staff can be reassured that they, once they speak up, they, they won't suffer as a consequence and that action will be taken. Uh, and we also should add, run a, a, a program called Integrity at Work, uh, and people can learn more about that at integrityatwork.ie, which brings employers together uh, we have 30 members of the of the the initiative uh, so far in Ireland, including our police service, Department of Education, Department of Justice, which aims at creating safer working environments for for for, for people to speak up, which commits the employer to uh, ensure that staff won't suffer as a consequence of speaking up, that action will be taken, and that they are signposted to relevant supports. Um, and it also allows us to engage with employers. We, we had in one case during the pandemic where a public service body had uh, told staff that they would not be assessing or investigating any new disclosures. And uh, that was brought to our attention through a helpline. And then we engaged directly with the employer to see that they they were able to to address these concerns um, just so just because you can't meet the face to face with a whistleblower doesn't mean there aren't other ways in which you can engage such as through zoom or through uh, through mobile uh through some other uh, platform whether it be over the phone um or maybe uh, an opportunity for someone to have a socially or physically distance 
interview with with an investigator or an assessor uh we need to think laterally about how we can uh it facilitate uh the reporting of these concerns and then act on them yes i think it's, it's really not only about having the right policy in place it's really about how you enforce it and in that regard uh the the the, uh, the example must come from the top and we've seen in many case, cases that there is not already the case so uh, when you cannot report internally, when you are uh, discouraged to do so or not listened, then you have to find you have to encourage these whistleblowers to speak up outside of the organisation. So how do you uh, try and convince uh, these uh, whistleblowers to, to basically risk their careers uh, and put themselves at risk uh, by speaking up for the greater good? So Mary, uh, in, in the US and Canada, uh, government government agents pay rewards whistleblowers who bring them uh, information about fraud. Uh, in many places in Europe, as you know, there is a cultural aversion to the payment of whistleblowers. For example, in France, uh, you are not supposed to report on people. You just don't do that. You don't want to be a snitch, uh, let alone uh, do it for the money. You would be a terrible person. So with this in mind, I would like to ask you, being provocative on purpose, Mary, um, do you really think uh, it's a good idea to reward people just for doing the right thing? Uh, and are you concerned that you're going to attract the wrong kind of people for the wrong reasons, uh, which, is, which is money? So I, this is my favorite topic. Um, and I, I should say out, uh, up front that I am not an employment attorney, despite the fact that this is an employment law conference. I specialize exclusively in helping whistleblowers get to the United States and Canadian government authorities who want to hear from them, who know that these people unlock amazing, have amazing inside information and sometimes even outside information that can help them unlock a fraud. They are uh, helpful in making them sort of one of their most effective tools in prosecuting. So um, my view is um, that the the EU directive and current laws in Ireland and other places are really great at having uh, rear view mirror protections, like looking in the rear view mirror to protect a whistleblower from retaliation. But remember, a whistleblower is only retaliated against because they have an issue that they want to bring forward that they want to have addressed. Have addressed. And so I feel like the American and Canadian programs are really good at signposting and providing an avenue, a sort of a sign that says it literally in, in all of the SEC our securities regulator, our commodities regulator, the CFTC, our tax authority, the IRS, literally have office of the, offices of the whistleblower where you can file a tip, complaint, or referral. And if the information you provide triggers an investigation and an enforcement action that ultimately imposes a penalty or a fine, then the whistleblower receives a percentage of that. Now, of course, the controversy is, I think, I, I, I would ask people to set aside your um, prejudices that this is an American person speaking um, and that there's perceptions that Americans, rightly or wrongly, are mercenary and that we are capitalism unchecked. And so I think people viscerally react to, oh, you know, this has certainly been my experience practicing in the UK. You Americans have to be paid to do the right thing. Like you have to be paid to give blood. Um, but we do it because it's the right thing to do. I think that ignores um, the fact that what these, what this money seeks to do is to provide a safety net. 
It's not a bounty. It's not a reward. It is really a safety net because remember the employment laws so far really only protect you against retaliation by that one employer, not necessarily all the future employers and the career blacklisting that often ensues. So we view rewards more as unemployment insurance, as a net present value of a career loss, um, a career long loss. So I think when you put it in that context, um, it helps to sort of understand that if you, we've all been discussing sort of the, the personal toll that is impacted and taken on whistleblowers for speaking, speaking up, you need something to tip the scales, right? Because I always say, let's go back to that conversation that that whistleblower is inevitably going to have if they have a family with their partner or their spouse and saying, I'm the sole breadwinner, I'm about to undertake this action, which you can't unring that bell once you've done it. Um, and, and, and think about what the consequences are gonna be. My clients don't do this for the money, but the money is something that helps them explain that the fact that there might be a safety net to catch them, because we all know whistleblowers ultimately can become radioactive and do. So that is, uh, about, I mean, the statistics, our programs, have been enormously successful. Um, and not just it, with Americans, but the reason I've been located to London is that you don't have to be American to use these programs or Canadian. Some of the biggest contributors, at least um, upwards of 15% of the successful cases have come from whistleblowers outside the United States. So I think it really uh, takes on your, your suggestion that Europeans are, un, are not motivated by awards and are not um, are not bringing these matters forward. That's the opposite of what we're seeing. And so just to bring it full circle, finally, to the COVID situation, as Jean mentioned, we're seeing a 35% increase in reporting to the SEC. Um, and I think part of what we're, uh, that's the American Securities Regulator. And I think part of what is happening here is that we're seeing, and certainly what my office is seeing, is some unprecedented misrepresentations of earning statements and other um, uh, other accounting frauds going on to address the fact that people, that companies are in extremis and are not doing particularly well. So I think that's part of what we have going on here. But I, like I said, I think the issue of rewards is something that we could do an entirely separate discussion on. Um, and I hope it provokes some questions in the questions and answers. I'm sorry. Uh, thank you very much, Mary. And I am not surprised that not only Americans uh, are uh, welcoming uh, a financial reward, of course, in a, a particular difficult time when you are uh, blowing, blowing the whistle. And I heard that some of the, the rewards granted by the SEC can be really high. Like, we, I was talking about uh, hundreds, hundreds, uh, hundred million dollars or that, that kind of, uh, for, for the highest ones, uh, obviously. So uh, turning to Jean now, uh, we would like to hear about South Africa. Uh, I think uh, South Africa has had uh, whistleblowing laws for about 20 years with some uh, recent amendments. So uh, what protections are provided uh, to whistleblowers? How are they enforced? And uh, is there room for improvement? 
Yeah, so um, South Africa, well, maybe take a, taking a step back, in Africa there's only about six or seven countries that have dedicated whistleblower legislation, um, South Africa being one of them. And I think in Kenya there's only sort of miscellaneous legislation that caters for whistleblower protections. But in South Africa, in, since uh, 2000, we've had dedicated um, whistleblower protection in the employment context. It's called the Protection of Disclosure, Protective Disclosure Act. And um, that overwent um, a, a major overhaul in 2017. And I, in my view, that the, the overhaul in 2017 actually helped to close a lot of the limitations that the original act has. So as a starting point, the act does provide for um, protection for employees and workers against occupational detriment or any retaliatory action for having dis made disclosures about impropriety. Previously, they, the protection wasn't afforded to anyone who was not an employee. So people like independent contractors um, or other people you might have, or, or uh, people placed through labor brokers would not necessarily have qualified in terms of the act. But with the amendment, we now see a protection to those, those categories of, of, of workers, which, is, which are of course very important because they have unique insight into um, organizations. So uh, that's a starting point. There's also a character, the, the act also makes provision for remedies um, for workers and employees who have been subjected to occupational detriment, um, which is compensation or the awarding of damages um, in the event that you're subjected to an unfair labor practice or you've been dismissed um, for having blown the whistle. Um, secondly, it also provides uh, for categories of to whom you can you know, make the disclosure to, um, including your employer, in certain instances, members of, you know, members of uh, parliament or um, government officials rather, let me say. Um, we have our constitutionally um, established institutions such as our auditor general and our public protector, and it, it sets out quite clearly um, who you can disclose to. Um, one of the, the areas of disclosure that it deals with, which I think is very relevant for the, you know, our current situation with COVID, is um, disclosures in relation to improprieties relating to health and safety, where someone's health and safety is, is at risk or, is, or is, um, has a potential to be at risk. That's one of the areas in which disclosures are encouraged in terms of the in terms of the acts. And I think that's obviously something that we're seeing. Um, I think the example that Mary has given in relation to the PPE. So I think that's important that the act deals with that. Um, and, and provides protection to people who make those kind of disclosures. Something that I think is very important, and, and John uh, touched on that earlier to talk about, well, lots of people have policies. So in South Africa, when the Act originally came out, the Act didn't prescribe to, to employers that they should have um, a policy in place or mechanisms in place for people to report. But with the amendment, it's now mandatory that um, the organization must set out a procedure for people to report and it must communicate to its employees and the people within its organization um, what that mechanism is. So you can't, there's no excuse to say, well, yeah, we had it, but we never communicated it or we weren't aware. It's an obligation on you as the employer to make your employees aware that these are the mechanisms that we have within our organization and, and, and of course, encourage the uptake of it. Um, something that I particularly think is very important is the Act makes provision for timelines. So if a, if a complaint comes to your attention through your whistleblowing mechanism, you can't just sit in it forever. Um, you can't, you know, not never get back to the person who makes the complaint. And and thankfully, what the Act sets out is, is strict timelines in relation to reporting back, acknowledging receipt of the of the of the complaint, 
um, giving feedback. Um, in certain instances, if it's not appropriate for you as the employer to, to investigate and to deal with that complaint, you might escalate it to a different body. But then you have to tell the whistleblower that, to say that we've received your complaint, we've looked at it, we can't deal with it, we've referred it externally. And then that body has set timelines within which to um, give feedback to the to the whistleblower. So I think all those are very imp important to um, actually make it conducive for someone to, to make disclosures um, of impropriety. Um, something else that I think is, um, I would say maybe a, maybe a limitation to the, to the act as it presently stands, is that no provision is made for compensation. Um, uh, no provision is made for compensation. And I think Mary has already sort of highlighted, you know, sort of the, 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 the scarlet letter that can be attached to someone who makes, makes these kind of disclosures. I mean, in South Africa, as an example, um, something that's captured, I, I think not just us, but people around the world, are, we're currently having a commission of inquiry into state capture. And one of the people who was sort of central to that is the former CEO of Trillion. Her name is Bianca Goodson. And she was one of the first people who spoke out about this. And she's spoken very publicly about um, the impact that having made those disclosures has had on her personally and, uh, and on her family. So she obviously had is, is, was not employed, is not able to get employed, and uh, went through a, a very um, went through a divorce as a result, and also suffered from PTSD. So I think something that perhaps the legislature needs to be looking at is, is adequate ways to um, compensate people in such circumstances because people are um, putting themselves making these disclosures at a great personal cost. Um, so I think that from, from the South African perspective, that is what I see as po possibly a limitation and where there's room for improvement is um, looking at how to compensate people. Um, something else that I thought, uh, well, there's, there's two schools of thought about it in relation to its introduction with the amendments is there's now um, a provision to um, prosecute people for false claims, which is something we didn't have before. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it's subject to imprisonment or payment of a fine. Um, and um, so, yeah, I think people kind of always have this idea that if linked to what Mary's saying about compensation is that if you incentivize people by giving them money, then you're going to get exaggerated claims and people might not necessarily be truthful. But I mean, allied with that is that, well, if people know, if they take advice and they know that they could be prosecuted for false claims, I think that's that's a way to mitigate against the argument to say, well, we shouldn't compensate people. Um, something that I, I often advise clients, you know, when we see you know, employment contracts and policies is you can't, and, in, and this is in terms of the act, you can't um, contract out of the protections afforded to people um, by the Protected Disclosures Act. So you can't have employees signing secrecy clauses. That's not permitted. Um, so I think that's, that's always very important to highlight to people is that employee, employees have these rights and um, it's, it's something that they, uh, they're entitled to in terms of legislation and it doesn't matter what your contracts say because it's not going to be enforceable. So I think in, in relation to South Africa, those are the protections we have. Um, and you know, it's, it's the jurisprudence is of course still developing, but I do think that the amendments close a lot of loopholes that were problematic for a long time prior to the amendments. Thank you, thank you, Jean. Uh, so uh, going back to Europe now with John, um, the uh, EU member states have until the end of this year to uh, transpose the uh, European Whistleblowing Directive uh, international law. For some countries in Europe, it will be the first whistleblowing law. I am happy to report that in France, we've had such a law for a couple of years. 
uh, without a financial reward, of course. <laughs> Uh, now, could you tell us about this uh, directive and how you think it might impact uh, whistleblowing during the pandemic and uh, moving forward? Yeah, uh, well, the directive, we, we, we lobbied for the directive going back to 2017, uh, if not earlier, uh, on foot of a directive which had um, created uh, an obligation on uh, whistleblowers to uh, the Trade Secrets Directive, which had come on, on, on the back of um, the LuxLeaks, if you remember the LuxLeaks scandal following the, 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 the release of information about uh, tax arrangements uh, between um, between U.S. multinationals, largely U.S. multinationals and tax authorities in Europe, uh, particularly in Luxembourg. And the European Commission at the time moved to protect trade secrets. One of the provisions under that directive was to uh, see that uh, a whistleblower show that they had um, they 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 would they'd be motivated by the general public interest in sharing or using a trade secret. So on the back of that and the, the, the treatment of Antoine, Antoine Del Toro, a whistleblower at PricewaterhouseCoopers in uh, Luxembourg, who was prosecuted for, for leaking information about, um, about the, these tax deals, the parliament moved to have a directive which would apply to all European member states, all European Union member states, and would draw on the experience of France, uh, Ireland, um, and a small uh, number of other EU uh, countries, as well as those uh, ex some accession countries like Serbia, and uh, protect w whistleblowers across the public and private sector, uh, reporting a number of categories of wrongdoing. And amongst the most important provisions is um, uh, the 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 requirement on employers across the public and private sector with more than 50 staff to have a policy and procedure in place to deal with disclosures and to respond to those disclosures within or to take action within three months or six months in exceptional circumstances and to acknowledge the report within seven days of having received it. Um, it will also assign responsibility to competent authorities, to regulators, to receive these complaints or th th these concerns, and will introduce some safeguards that are already in place in Ireland um, to to um, or, or allow for, for 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 these protections, such as the right to uh, seek compensation through the courts for for any detriment. Uh, the right to interim relief, which would prevent a, a an employer from firing a whistleblower, um, and, and mean, as is the case in Ireland, that if you receive notice of dismissal uh, within three weeks or twenty one working days, you can go to a court and stop your employer from 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 dismissing you pending a hearing uh, in the in the through the labour courts or the Workplace Relations Commission. It would also provide. Uh, for in some cases legal aid um, for for whistleblowers, so that they don't have to they don't have to put their own hands in their, their, their put their hands in their own pockets to meet the costs of 
um, of, of defending themselves in, in the face of, of reprisal. Most importantly for, for us here in Ireland, it will reverse the burden of proof on the, the employer to mean that the employer now has to show that a decision to lay someone off, such as redundancy or to relocate a worker uh, against their will, had nothing to do with the disclosure they had made. Currently in Ireland, uh, the, the, the burden of proof rests on the employee and it means um, and there are a number of factors behind this, this finding, but it means that less than 10% of cases coming before the WRC in Ireland uh, are successful, um, in spite of the fact that we have what is considered to be one of the strongest, if not the strongest, whistleblower laws in, in the EU. Um, I, 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 if I may, I, I might come back to the issue of rewards for a second. Uh, and um, I think the, the, the reward schemes run by the SEC, IRS and, and others, uh, the Department of Justice for reports of breaches of the FCPA, have been successful in large part because you can quantify the loss to the federal government. Uh, and, and that's one of the reasons why they were they were created in the 1860s. You know, they, there was a clear link between the report and the fraud uh, against the government, and it meant that you 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 could make an award or reward based on the size of the the, the amount lost or the amount recouped. Um, I'm not sure a reward scheme would compensate. Um, someone like Chris Smalls, for example, at Amazon, or the five other whistleblowers who've been fired there since. Um, and I think it points to the need for a, a, a legal system that provides access to 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 the courts in a in a in a in a way which does not bankrupt or run uh, run the risk of bankrupting the plaintiff or the appellant in the case uh, to have a, a, a meaningful union, uh, a, a strong trade unions that protect workers. And we can see a move towards or shift towards this under the Biden administration. And to think twice about a movement towards small government, uh, which is almost like, which is ideological uh, in, in, in many cases, and they need to invest in, in adequate regulation because no matter what laws you have in place, we found this in Ireland and we'll find it again once the EU directive is, 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 uh, is transposed, that it's not enough. You need to have regulators that are equipped and empowered to enforce regulations and to enforce the law. As we know, one of the most common reasons why people are afraid of speaking up it's not because of a fear of reprisal. It's the fear of futility. It's the fear that nothing will be done once they speak up, that they would have wasted all that time, run all that risk for nothing. And it means that our, our central banks, our financial regulators, our health regulators need to be empowered and resourced and given the independence to do their jobs. Uh, because otherwise whistleblowers will just continue to run into dead ends. Uh, and and it, it, it's that lack of action, both at employer level and at regulatory level, that exposes 
whistleblowers in our experience exposes them to to a great risk of, of reprisal. Thank you, that's really interesting. So we're uh, slowly approaching the end. So uh, maybe a question to Mary. What, what advice would you give to organizations when one of the employees blows a whistle? And is it true what they say that good business comes out of, of good behavior? So um, I, I definitely want to address that question. I do want to respond to John in terms of uh, his, his um, I, I totally agree with John that one of the limitations of reward programs is that they're only as effective, uh, whistleblowers only receive a reward if the regulator imposes a fine. So that works well in the United States where we have some very aggressive regulators um, and a Department of Justice, but I'm not, I, I, I don't, believe that this is necessarily appropriate everywhere. I will note it's not just limited. Um, the success of the whistleblower programs in the United States have spawned other programs in the United States, including a new Motor Vehicle Safety Act, which allows people who work at car or parts or uh, part suppliers or manufacturers who know of defects to bring information forward. We actually represent one of the Hyundai whistleblowers who um, gave the information, he worked in South Korea and saw an engine seizing problem, Takata airbags. We're seeing something similar as a result of the Boeing scandals that the FAA should have a program. So it, they are working really well and it doesn't just go to financial frauds, it goes to health and safety as well. Um, but moving to your, and I guess on the access to justice question, which I think is a really important one, um, in the United States, there's a, a uh, an ability to, and most whistle, most attorneys like myself, including in the class action space, so Chris Small's lawyers, and we represent our clients on a success fee or a contingency fee basis. So your access to justice question and point is really well taken. I've just been surprised that that success fee model has not been taken up in European countries as much. Um, but moving to the question of what can employers do, I think that I frequently speak to compliance organizations and I'm there as a fear monger, right? That, that if you don't do the right things, then all of a sudden, um, you know, you're, you're going to have the SEC knocking at your door and people are going to call Mary. Um, that's not the case. Um, so uh, the good news is that the SEC reports that 80% of the whistleblowers who come to them have reported internally first. That's actually how they, the way the, the rules are structured, that you actually get, it's not a limitation. You don't have to, uh, to report internally first to be eligible, but it is a plus factor in determining what amount of reward that you get. If you did report internally first, you get a higher reward because we want to encourage trying to address the, not bypassing internal reporting channels. So I can tell people who are corporate counsel, who are, represent the companies, that if you are listening, the, the empirical data shows whistleblowers try at least three, four, and sometimes five times to report internally before they ever go external. So my, my advice to uh, employers is that um, really question yourself. You are you listening? Because if you're listening, you can address these things before they have before the whistleblower gets disgruntled and has to leave and go external. Um, there's some really important research that I like to point folks to um, that is coming out of George Washington University and the University of Utah that talks about these internal reporting mechanisms, which now under the EU directive, uh, as as John pointed out, public and and private employers of 50 or more have to have these. 
mechanisms. What the data is showing is that whistleblowers are good for your company's bottom line. Not only are they not liabilities and snitches, they're actually assets because companies who have internal reporting mechanisms that are actively used where people feel safe to report have fewer lawsuits, fewer investigations than those who have a silent hotline. So my advice is that with the EU directive coming in, please think about these reporting mechanisms are only as good as the corporate culture that it sits within. And so I would ask you to think about, um, you are now going to have data, you're gonna have policies that say, we're, we are encouraging speak up. So please encourage it and not have it be what I worry is that if the culture hasn't caught up to the law, there'll be a lot of people who will be retaliated against. Uh, I, leave, I leave everyone with the last, um, uh, cautionary tale of Jess Staley, the CEO of Barclays Bank, who when the senior manager's regime was, uh, in, it was in, adopted in the UK in, re in response to the financial crisis, a similar requirement was put in place to have an internal reporting mechanism to allow for anonymous reports. Um, Barclays hired gold-plated advisors, put in the state-of-the-art system. The first um, complaint across the transom was an anonymous report um, challenging cronyism on the part of some hiring decisions by Jess Staley, the first things he does is seeks to unmask the whistleblower. He's advised that he can't do that and he doubles down. Um, so only he only received a $600,000 fine from the Financial Conduct Authority, which is frankly bus money for someone like uh, Jess Staley, but Barclays walked away without a fine. Across the pond, uh, the Department of Financial Services in New York, which also regulates um, Barclays for this behavior imposed a $14 million fine. So I just think we need to be aware that um, these systems sit in organizations that need to embrace and have a, ha take, take to heart this research that whistleblowers are forward indicators of risks. They are canaries in the coal mine. They are your best friends, the CEO's best friend, and we need to start internalizing that research. Yeah, thank you. And I think companies should also think about the damage to their reputation that they are they are risking if they don't listen to whistleblowers and the, the whistleblowers go external and then it goes out and it's all over social media. It's all over name name. It's all about name and shame now, which can be much more damaging damage, damaging than than listening to the whistleblower at an early stage. So uh, we have a few minutes left. Uh, Jean, uh, would you like to share with us some best practices about companies? Yes, just very quickly. Um, I think Mary has, has touched, she's hit the nail right on the head to say that your whistleblowers are the canary in the coal mine. Um, employers need to stop seeing whistleblowing as something that's scary or that's taboo. It's actually something, it's essential to risk management. It provides learning opportunities in a structured environment and, and as you said, as a means to manage reputational damage. So the first thing I would say, um, or the one thing I would say to any um, employers thinking about whistleblowing is, is to look at your, your internal mechanisms and your policies, especially in the light of COVID and ask yourself, are they fit for purpose? So people are working from home. Is that is that now a barrier for people to, to um, come and disclose to you? Do you need to update your mechanisms for reporting to make it easier for people who are working remotely um, to raise complaints of impropriety? And secondly, people are feeling insecure because we're in an economic downturn and people have lost, lots of people have been laid off and lost their jobs. And so people might be feeling fearful to speak out during the, the pandemic. So it's, it's up to us as employers to reassure our employees that their complaints are um, confidential, 
that they can do so anonymously and that something will actually be done. And then thirdly and lastly is, of course, you must do something. <laughs> you must do something when you receive such complaints. You can't just sit with them. And I know that, um, as, as um, John alluded to earlier, that resources are currently, or in some situations, might be um, scarce. But I think this is something that needs to have a dedicated resources to. So my number one takeaway is, are your mechanisms fit for purpose? Um, don't see whistleblowing as something that's you know, scary and taboo. It's risk management. And, and so maybe, and to circle back to the issue of rewards, sometimes the reward does not have to be monetary. If an employee makes a disclosure that assists you and helps you with risk management, a letter from the chairman or a, um, a day off might be something that would, be, would go much further to incentivize people um, to, to make these kind of disclosures and to show appreciation, to say, we appreciate what, you, what you've picked up and brought to our attention. And, and sorry, I the last, last thing I would say is that um, it, it also makes it easier for people to speak up if it's mandatory for them to do so. So it doesn't feel like being a snitch if the rules say that I have to inform if there's a safety breach or if there's um, a problem with my PPE, for example. So I think it's, it, it is whistleblowing can't be, the, the value of whistleblowing can't be overstated um, and it's actually um, an employer's best friend. Thank you very much. So I think time is up. Uh, thank you so much for your contributions. Uh, thank you all for uh, attending the session. I hope you enjoyed it. You enjoyed it as much as we did. And now it's not over, so please stick around. We are. We would love to chat with you now in the networking room about whistleblowing or any other. Stuff. So if you just stick around, we have a, a twenty-minute networking session right now. Thank you very much.